Good morning. So as David said, today we start a four-week preaching series through some of the prophecies that we find in the book of Isaiah. And these are prophecies that point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'll admit it, to appreciate some of the compelling rhyme that may have gone undetected, you've got to indulge an Australian accent with me for just a minute. This series is called The Messiah in Isaiah. That's completely normal in Australia. But today, we're in chapter 7. Isaiah, which I'll say Isaiah from here on out. Chapter 7, and the outline is very simple. The story, the sign, and the Savior. First, we'll look at the context of the prophecy, which is the story of God's people. Then we'll draw some conclusions on the sign of the prophecy. And third, we'll see how that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So would you bow your heads with me as I pray for God to bless this time in his word. Heavenly Father, we ask humbly that you would comfort us by your word, that you would be with us by your spirit. Lord, that you would grant us understanding and humility and childlike wonder at the miracle of God with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before I read some of this text, I actually want to jump into the first point. It's the quickest to the very first point um, to set up the story a bit. But think about this. If you had to summarize the entire storyline of the Bible in one sentence, how would you do it? Let's think in broad categories for a minute. David uh, Vanderwater hinted at it earlier. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God. After they sinned, they hide themselves from what it says, the presence of the Lord in Genesis 3.8, and they hide out of fear. As a result of their sin, God sends them away from the place of his special presence, but not before promising a solution to the presence problem. Though Satan had deceived God's people, God would take up the mission to save his people, to bring them back into right relationship with him. This is one way to summarize what the Bible is all about, bringing about the fullness of God with us. So we see this throughout Scripture in God's special covenant with Abraham and his preservation of Noah amidst judgment and his rescuing of God's people out of Egypt in the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire representing God's guiding presence in the wilderness, and giving them his, his law to light their path, giving them a, a mediator like Moses to serve between God and man, in the tabernacle, the temple, where God's special presence dwelt, and in the Davidic throne, where people could find hope in God's covenant promises. But here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, we see this. We see God's presence is both comforting and chastening. As God guides his people, he corrects them. He disciplines them. He rightly calls them to holiness in light of his own holiness. And so what do we see? What do we see? We see that we as people, as man made in the image of God, but in the line of Adam, we fail to live faithfully before God. Generation after generation, though God is steadfast in his promises and he's patient 
in his love, God's people live as if he's not even there. We're chasing after fleeting pleasures and temporary provisions, and we forget that God desires to be in our midst, that he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Instead, what do we see over and over again? What do we experience in our own lives? We turn somewhere else for help. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 7. The prophet Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the second half of the 700s BC. And by this time, the kingdom had split after Solomon to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah spoke primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. During the time of the kings, you had a few good kings, as uh, Pastor Tom has been taking us through. You also had some pretty bad kings. Um, The king's job was to rule with justice and righteousness, to lead God's people in the ways of the Lord. But instead, most of the kings were half-hearted at best, and it says that they led the people into sin and idolatry. Isaiah 7 to 12 occurs in the time of King Ahaz of Judah. And in this situation, Ahaz is being attacked on all fronts. Edom from the south, Philistia from the west, Syria, or as it's sometimes called in scripture, Aram, from the northeast, and none other than Israel from the north, who had joined forces with Syria to come and take Judah. So here is where I want to read Isaiah 7, 1 through 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, so that's Judah, was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel, I'm going to keep these names straight, then the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it, to threat to the Davidic throne. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
So in this situation, God sends Isaiah to remind Ahaz and Judah where their help comes from. And he ensures them that he will not allow Syria and Israel to dethrone the Davidic king. To do that would be to call God's promises into question. So when this Davidic king, Ahaz, is squeezed on all sides, where does he turn for help? Well, let's remember for a moment the good king, Jehoshaphat. When he was under attack in 2 Chronicles 20, how does he respond? It says he gathered Judah together to seek the Lord. And this is what he prayed. He said, Oh, our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a prayer. I mean, that's a prayer that we ought to pray. We find ourselves in a situation we do not know what to do, Lord. He would love to be called out, called upon in that situation. Our eyes are on you. So let's compare that to King Ahaz. This passage from Isaiah corresponds with 2 Kings 16 and the narrative of what happens there with Ahaz. And here is what he does when he feels squeezed on all sides. He says, it says, So Ahaz didn't call upon the name of the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord. He didn't pray. It said, He sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, different than Syria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. And it says, The king of Assyria listened to him. And he came and he rescued Ahaz, at least for now. So Ahaz doesn't turn to God for help. He turns to man. He turns to a pagan king who can't be trusted. A king who has nothing in mind but self-interest. So let's pause to think about our own lives. Where in your life do you find this temptation? When you feel trapped, you feel tempted to turn from God's ways and to turn somewhere else, to forge your own path? Is it when finances are tight? Is it when a relationship is frustrating and it seems hopeless? Is it when you've suffered unjustly? Is it when it just seems like doing things God's ways just aren't producing the results that you want, the results that you think are right? Well, this is where living faith is forged, at the edge of when it seems that all is falling apart. And this is where Judah finds itself. Its very existence is being threatened. So I want to pick back up in the text in Isaiah 7, in verse 10. We'll read through 17. Verse 10, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. That means let it be something extraordinary. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord 
to the test. So if we remember what we read in 2 Kings and what Ahaz actually did, we can understand that this was probably more insincere flattery than anything else. So Isaiah picks up on this, and look how he responds. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So as the story continues, Assyria comes to Judah's aid. Assyria comes and destroys Syria and captures the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and exiles them from the land. So now the southern kingdom of Judah is basically owned, as you might expect by doing such a favor, owned by Assyria and owes them loyalty and tribute. Turns out there's a cost. But in God's sovereignty, Assyria would not only destroy Israel and Syria, but would then actually be used as a rod of God's discipline on Judah also. And the rest of chapter 7, if you continue it, it records four prophetic descriptions of the destruction that the king of Assyria will bring on Judah. The Lord himself, in the midst of this desolation, takes the initiative, the mercy, the grace to give his people a sign of hope in the midst of desolation. And this is what the, the, our sovereign Lord does. We who look in all directions to comfort our minds and our bodies, instead of looking to the Lord, we deserve God's abandonment. We deserve his judgment, and yet he takes it upon himself to come to us, to give us hope in the midst of desolation that we have brought upon ourselves. So with this storyline established, I want to move on to point number two and look at the sign itself. So th this is known as the Emmanuel prophecy. We've been singing about Emmanuel all morning. And this prophecy has been interpreted in a few different ways. I want to highlight just, just three of them. Some say that the prophecy has direct fulfillment in Isaiah's own lifetime and does not apply any further. This one, for Christians, is not an option, as we're going to see very shortly. Others say that this prophecy has no or at least little fulfillment in Isaiah's own lifetime and only finds fulfillment in the time of Christ. And this is a long-held view that solid, faithful Christians who seek to interpret the Bible, the whole counsel of God, in a Christ-centered way ha have landed on. And ultimately, this overlaps in all the most important ways with a third view. The third view 
talks about a two-stage fulfillment or a double fulfillment. They'll say there's an immediate application in Isaiah's day or a near fulfillment, but the prophecy doesn't find its full and ultimate fulfillment until the far future, until Christ comes 600 years later. This view keeps the whole counsel of God in mind and also tries to make responsible use of Isaiah's context. This view identifies the first stage of initial fulfillment of the Emmanuel child with either of Isaiah's sons or with Ahaz's son or with a generic son, uh, more metaphorically, but still holds out the ultimate fulfillment of Christ in light of Isaiah 9 and Matthew 1. So those are kind of the, that's the roadmap. That's the general options that we have at play. And before I give you my view, let's talk Hebrew prophecy. B.B. Warfield uses this analogy where he says the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, one way to think about that is to think of the Old Testament as a room that is richly furnished, but it's dimly lit. Everything's in place, but you can't really see a whole lot of detail. You can kind of make out some of the corners, the edges of the tables and the chairs and, and the couch and You can kind of see where the light's supposed to come from, but it's very dimly lit. Warfield says that when you move to the New Testament, it's like the light's being turned on in the room. It doesn't bring anything that wasn't already there, but now you can see it with full clarity. Or, if you want to think of another illustration, this weekend as we're driving in our car, one of my children pointed out uh, to a house that had a whole bunch of Christmas lights on it. And I said, Daddy, I can see that there's Christmas lights on it, but they're not on. I can't really see the lights. I, I can't really see the, the full glow, the magnificence of what's at play. So what would happen? When you turn on the lights, suddenly it's not that there's anything new there, but you could see the detail in full glory and magnificence. Isn't this how it is with much of the Old Testament? Colossians says that the ceremonies and the festivals were shadows of the real substance, which is Christ. Hebrews says that the whole sacrificial system finds its efficacy in Christ. And so it is with much of the prophetic books of Scripture. But we can be sure that the prophets in God's sovereignty had a singular ultimate focus to proclaim the Messiah, the one on whom all of God's promises converge. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, in him. 1 Peter 1.10-12 says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the prophets were God's anointed messengers. 
They came from God to deliver exactly what God wanted to say, in the way he wanted to say it, at exactly the right time he wanted them to say it. And the prophets were given privileged knowledge into God's redemptive plan, but they were not given exhaustive knowledge. Ever since Genesis 3, God's been progressively revealing more and more about this plan, about this God with us plan. And there are some prophecies that are pretty clear and explicit. When Herod asked the scribes where the Messiah is to be born, when the wise men are asking him, what do they say? They say, oh, it's in Bethlehem. How do you know that? Micah said so. In chapter 5, verse 2. Now, in Isaiah 7, I have spent hours wrestling with the different views on this passage. And to be fair, like I said, the first one I think we have to reject, and I'll get there in just a moment. But views two and three, good, reformed, faithful scholars, theologians have, have, have come down on those places, and, it, and they've interpreted it a little bit differently. But here's what I think everyone would say. They'd say, let's not let the particulars of the sign distract us from the purpose of the sign. Today, we like to break it down piece by piece. We like to take it apart, understand every little detail, and put it back together. But that's not really how Hebrew prophecy works. It's a lot more organic than that. And the inspired prophets, though they were anointed as God's mouthpieces by the Holy Spirit, even they were not given all the details. God gave them just enough detail to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. He's the grand architect that's putting all the pieces in place, and he knows how they fit together. And the purpose of Isaiah 7 is this, is to communicate to God's people at their deepest and most hopeless moment, Emmanuel. God is with us, even in the midst of their own disobedience. God is with his people. So now here's my view. In my understanding, that third one I mentioned, the two-stage fulfillment view, is plausible. But in order to make conclusions about the near fulfillment in Isaiah's day, you have to fill in several gaps with speculative details that the Bible just doesn't give us. We may want them, but they're not there. So I think the safest interpretation is more in line with that second view, to see the link between the virgin-born Emmanuel child of chapter 7 with the incomparable kingly divine child of chapter 9, of which there's no question. And this view is not incompatible with any of the details that the text actually gives us. Chapter 8, um, if you're reading ahead, chapter 8 says that Isaiah's sons are indeed signs themselves, but their names are more descriptive of the historical narrative rather than something that would be an identity marker of the Messiah. And so we can let Isaiah's sons be their own signs with their own names. Just briefly, the first son is Sheer Jashub, and it means a remnant shall return, a sign of hope, but also judgment, because you don't need a remnant unless there's judgment and destruction that comes first. The second son is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. 
And that's a sign that judgment is coming speedily. But the sign that serves as the foundation of it all is the sign of Emmanuel, a miraculous sign beyond all comparison, a child born of a virgin. And this signifies that the way God will preserve his people will be of his own doing, in his own way that defies our understanding. And the word God had for his people at this stage is this child's name, Emmanuel. I am with you. That's the message Ahaz needed. That's the message the house of Judah needed. That's the message that would sustain the remnant amidst the judgment. That's the message that the angels heralded to Joseph and Mary. So we read in Matthew 1 and in Luke 2. This is the message that you and I need today. This is the message that when my kids wake up in the middle of the night afraid of the dark, afraid of loneliness, afraid of a sound or a shadow, this is the message they need. Do not fear. God is with you. Thankfully, you and I live in a privileged time when the details have been filled in. God with us has taken on flesh. Or, as B.B. Warfield says, the lights have come on. So moving into our third point, we see the Savior. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So even if you take the near fulfillment view, it's completely overshadowed by the definitive fulfillment and application of Isaiah 7 by the Apostle Matthew. The same spirit that inspired Isaiah inspired Matthew. And if you read Matthew's gospel over and over again, he, he goes to show you that Isaiah is speaking of Christ. Isaiah knew that God was doing something, that he would be used by God to give just the right message at just the right time, even if he didn't have all the pieces. None of the prophets did, but they sought to be his faithful messenger. Think about this message, God is with us. The sign itself even doesn't work out all the details. It doesn't play out all the specific ways that God is going to be with you, to bless you. That's yet to be seen. And so it is when your life, in your life, when you're feeling at the end of your hope, you're not sure how to press on. Oftentimes, God doesn't give you all the details, but he does give you what you need. And God doesn't disappoint Because 600 years after Isaiah's prophecy, the virgin conceived and Emmanuel was born. Turn to Matthew 1. Let's read it for ourselves. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from, the sleep, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we do, let's work out a few details from this text. The prophecy said that his name would be Emmanuel, but Joseph and Mary call him Jesus. So if we're seeking to be technical, literalistic, wouldn't there be a problem here? I actually don't think there's a problem. I think this is part of the solution. <laughs> when you look at Isaiah 7 and 9, speaking of a child, of miraculous identity, we don't get a proper name. We don't get, or by a proper name, I mean a name that you and I would call each other. Names as we understand that they work as an identity marker. Instead, we get these divine markers of what the Messiah would signify. We get Emmanuel, God with us. We get Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The other sons, well, we get their proper names, and that's all we get. And we know what they mean, but that's all we get of them. They don't have more than one title. And so until Jesus is born, we have these titles, but we don't have the proper name. And so this is part of the reason I take the long fulfillment view is because now we have the identity, the proper name of the Messiah. He would be called Jesus. And we consider the broad narrative of redemptive history, we see how these names come together by divine appointment. What does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. And how is it that Yahweh saves? By coming to us. God with us to bring us back to himself. Thousands of years of biblical history show that people couldn't rescue themselves. So we need God to come and get us. Next week, Tim's going to unpack Isaiah 9 and see the many names, the many titles, the many descriptors of the Messiah. His, his ministry is so grand and full that no one name can capture it all. It's interesting when we see in the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Maybe that's a misconception or, or something that we have to learn as children. But what does Christ mean? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is a Hebrew word. Being the Messiah means that he's the anointed one. He's the anointed prophet that reveals God to us to show us the way of salvation. He's the anointed priest to be our mediator and to offer himself on the cross to secure our salvation. He's the anointed king to rule and defend us, to protect our salvation. 
being our Messiah is a grand, multifaceted ministry. So how do we relate to this in our everyday lives? Hebrews 11 tells us that the physical journey of God's people through this world mirrors our spiritual journey to another world. And why was it so staggering that God's people in the 700s B.C. received the message that God is with us? Because everything around them and everything happening to them made it seem like God was not with them. They began to think that maybe God has abandoned us. So God says, it shall not be. I will save my people. I will preserve my people, uphold my people, because I am with my people. Do you feel abandoned by God at times? Do you wonder if he's near? Do you wonder if he's with you? What, what do you fear that brings up these questions? So think about how incredibly privileged we are to live in the 700s, not in the 700s, but in the 21st century. And what do we call it? A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. We live in the present reign of Christ. Emmanuel has come. He's accomplished all that it took to save the remnant. And while he sits at God's right hand, King Jesus is with us now. So if you feel like he's not near, let's think of a few ways that we see Christ's nearness to us now. First of all, by his word. The word of God is living and active. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And here's a reality that maybe we don't always think about. Whenever the Bible is read, you are hearing God's voice. You're hearing God's voice. And he's with us. Number two, he's with us by his church. When we're gathered in his name, there he is among us. And there's a unique potency to the presence of God when believers gather together. Notice that it says God with us and not just God with me. God's always been about saving a people unto himself. Number three, he's with us by his sacraments. The Lord Jesus appointed two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are gifts to the church to build us up in his grace. Whenever we witness baptism, whenever we take communion, God visits his people in a special way to say, I am with you. Look at my covenant promises. They've been threatened before, but I've been faithful all the way. And the last way I'd point out that he's with us is by his spirit. We can hardly scratch the surface of how significant it is that the very spirit of God dwells in us as believers. And here's what this means, just in a simple way. Wherever you go, whatever you do, God goes with you. Emmanuel, God with us, sent his spirit that he may be God in us. So be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for the Lord your God goes with you. 
He will not leave you or forsake you, Deuteronomy 31, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6. And hear Christ himself say, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And in John 14, he says, Not only am I with you, but I'm taking you somewhere. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what is the sign to show us that we can trust his promises? He brought a baby from a virgin. Miraculous, beyond our understanding. One more point of application must be said. God with us is a great comfort to his people, but it's anything but comfort to his enemies. The Lord gives the sign of Emmanuel to communicate hope to those who trust in him by faith, but judgment to those who refuse his grace and continue to trust in man. We see in scripture oftentimes God's presence to the disobedient, to those who are at war with him, is not a blessing to those who are trusting only in what you can see. God rules and defends his people. But that happens in the context of conquering his enemies. As we saw, Syria and Samaria were destroyed. Even Judas taken into exile, and only a remnant remains, a remnant of God's faithful ones. Today we see that God's people And all nations upon earth who call upon the name of Jesus are his remnant who will be saved. Those who look to him for protection by faith in Christ can have every reason to hope in this life. God's presence is with you for your favor. But God is also just. And Christ is also described as the righteous judge who will indeed crush Satan and all of those who follow him. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, either in humble, thankful worship or in terrifying subjugation. So what about you? Come now to turn from trusting in yourself or anything else and worship the King. Worship Emmanuel. Psalm 16 is a precious promise and can guide our own prayers. Here's a prayer, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For now we live in a privileged time, of course, and yet we wait. We wait for Emmanuel to come again, fully And finally, maybe this is the better way to see the double stage fulfillment. 
his incarnation as the first stage, his final coming as he makes all things new as the second stage. Let me read from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3 to end our time this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will be a day where we wait no longer. Until then, we look at the precious promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Let us pray together. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Lord, we rejoice that we live in a time where you have filled in the details of your Messiah, our rescuer, the one that has come to give his life as a ransom for us, the one that has come to be with us and walk our roads, that he might be a faithful and sympathetic high priest to minister to us, the one that has come to send his spirit that he might be in us. Lord, now as we come to your table, would you help us to find comfort and strength and hope that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.